Well, Sir Alexander Fleming was a prominent researcher, medical researcher in the early 1900s. Does anybody know what Sir Alexander Fleming, Fleming is known for? Anybody? Anybody at all? Anybody? Any of my doctor friends know what Sir Alexander Fleming created? Man, I'm going to question our doctors these days. Come on, y'all. Well, he won a Nobel Prize in physiology and medicine in 1945. And what's most interesting about Dr. Fleming is that his most noteworthy accomplishment came out of a trash can. It came from what he at the moment saw as his ultimate failure. Dr. Fleming was working with a a team of bacteriologists and biologists, and they were trying to, to come up with a miracle cure, a quote, wonder cure, if you will, that could cure diseases. And things were not going well for Dr. Fleming and his team. So they discarded the entire experiment, just threw everything away. And one day as he was walking past the trash can, which makes me question the integrity of the the cleanliness of the room, but as he was walking past the trash can, those Petri dishes were still in there. And he looked down and he happened to notice that one of the Petri dishes had begun growing a mold. And this mold was eating away at the bacteria that they had cultivated in the Petri dish. Does anybody now know what Dr. Fleming came up with? Penicillin. Penicillin. Isn't that interesting? That Dr. Fleming, this, this unquestionable failure, you know, you, we, could, we could look, I don't know how much money was spent, but a great deal of money was spent on, on, on dealing with this, this, this issue they were working towards and trying to come up with a solution and trying to come up with this cure. And they're so frustrated that they throw everything away and he just happens. Can you imagine how sick to your stomach you would have felt looking in there and seeing that you almost threw away one of the greatest medical inventions or discoveries of the modern era. It's insane. But here he is looking in the trash. We've heard, we've heard the old saying, right? One man's trash is another man's treasure. Well, in this case, this man's trash was his treasure. And I find this, I find this to be applicable when it comes to the grace of God. I think it's interesting that if, if we consider the reality of our lives, Were it not for the issues, the unmitigated disaster that is humanity, there would be no need for grace, right? And it is the grace of God that takes our mistakes, that takes the trash of our failure and turns it into successes. God redeems us over and over and over again. He takes things that we would consider unspeakable evils and ills in our lives. And somehow, in his grace, God is able to turn that around to our advantage, for our benefit, for the benefit of humanity at times. In his grace, God turns our mistakes, the mistakes of humanity, into the means of bringing about his miracles. 
And that's what we see in Esther over and over again as we see the, these mistakes that humanity is making, these intentional errors that they're pursuing, these, these terrible things that the, the, the Persian government is doing and their failures over and over again. And somehow, in, in the midst of that, God takes these failures that are targeted at the people of God and he turns them around and uses them as the means to provide for his people. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Esther chapter 2. Esther chapter 2. And we're going to start with the first four verses this morning. It says this, Esther 2, starting in verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now again, the point that I see over and over in this text and throughout the book of Esther is this, that in his grace, God can and often does use the mistakes of humanity to enact his plan. God can and often does use the mistakes of humanity to enact his plan. I mean, we, we do have a talent for messing things up, don't we? I mean, we, we have a, a talent and a penchant for making mistakes early and often. We are really good at doing the wrong thing. And oftentimes, one mistake becomes several. We stack them. The struggle is real, is it not? That, that we make one mistake, and in the, in the effort to fix that one mistake, we make another mistake. And then in the effort to fix that mistake, it becomes another mistake. And, and by the time we're done, everything is unrecognizable, and we can't believe, did I just do that? I mean, this is one of those areas where there are, there are legion of personal examples I could use of massive mistakes that I've made in the past that, that have, have just seemed to snowball on me. But one in particular comes to mind. I remember as a, a young youth pastor, one of the things that I hated more than anything in youth ministry was all-nighters, lock-ins. Our personal philosophy of lock-ins is more souls are made than saved at lock-ins. So we just don't do them. Lock-ins are a bad idea. We don't do lock-ins. But I, at the advice of my volunteers one year, was pushed to do a lock-in at our church. Just so much of these, these long-time volunteers saying that we had to do it. The kids love them. They're easy. We don't have to do that much work. We just got to order some pizza and throw a movie on periodically, and it's good to go. And I'm like, I don't want to do this. But I, I was a team player, and I said, we will do a lock-in at the church. The day of the lock-in, I came and I walked into the church and, and I realized that we were having a, a wake. It wasn't truly a visitation or a viewing because there was no body. She had been cremated. So up at the front of the sanctuary on the communion table, the altar, was, was an urn with the ashes of our dearly departed lady. And as I'm getting ready for the, the lock-in, the pastor comes to me, and the same funeral director that forgot and then took the body came up to me and said, hey, um, Jeremy, 
So we've talked to Mrs. So-and-so's family, and she was a patriarch of the youth ministry here at, at First Baptist Church or Faith Baptist Church. We would love to, to keep but her stay for her last night before we impose her ashes. Like we would love, or inter her ashes, we'd love to have just one more night at the church. And we just think for her to be a part of this youth activity would be a great idea. I very much considered turning in my resignation at that moment. I've already told you that I insist that churches are haunted and the demons live here at night. Another reason I'm against all-nighters, but it's the pastor, right? And it's this matriarch of youth ministry that started it decades ago. So what am I going to say? Like, fine, we'll do it. But we're going to be all throughout the church that night, right? So I, I take the urn and I take it back behind the, the, the modesty rail and I just lay it, sit it nicely right down at the side. And then at the beginning of our activity, I called all of our middle schoolers, it was a middle school lock-in, and I called all of them together and I said, listen, I'm not going to tell you why, but the stage in this sanctuary is off limits. Do not, for any reason, come on the stage. This is holy ground. And if you disrespect the stage you will never come to another activity at First Baptist Church again. Not actually the name of the church. I'm protecting the innocent. So I tell them, don't go on the stage, right? We go through the night. We come to the point of the evening where we're going to play our rousing game of underground church, hide and seek, whatever the game was that night. And I remind the students, one rule tonight, right? Where do we not go? We don't go on the stage. That's right. So the game commences, right? game that I thought maybe we shouldn't do because there are ashes on the stage, but we do the game anyways. And we're running around the church, and it just happened that our music library was back behind the stage. And so I'm hiding back behind the stage, and there are doors to each side, and I can hear the students coming. And I know that I've been caught. But then I had a brilliant idea. The students aren't supposed to go on the stage. But that doesn't mean that I can't go on the stage. I am the law. So I quickly get up on the stage and I begin crawling my way against the front of the, the, the choir loft. And then at the last second, I turn so I can see where the students are coming from. And I felt my foot hit something. And I heard the lid rolling on the floor. And I was like... Oh, God, please no. Not again. So I quickly called to my leaders. I was like, game's over. Everybody downstairs to the youth room. We're watching a movie. Leader's like, what? And I'm like, don't worry about it. Mind your business. So I, I get them downstairs, and I come upstairs, and I look, and there, across the front row of the choir loft, is the matriarch of youth ministry <laughs> in all of her dusty glory. So I'm like, what do I do? What does one do when someone has spilled someone's ashes across the front of the sanctuary? I went and grabbed the dustbuster. It's exactly what I did. Looked to the side, there was a dirt devil, and so I went and I vacuumed up the poor woman. And then I opened it and I dumped her ashes back into the urn and I closed it and I went back on with my life. 
The guilt was overwhelming. I'll tell you the rest of the story later. I did end up surviving this moment. I did end up telling the pastor. But it was one of those issues where one bad act idea led to another, which then led to another, which led to mistakes. Mistakes were made, right? Big mistakes. Like career-ending mistakes. Well, she did. She was good with it. Her daughter actually, like, her daughter later, because since it was as mentioned and you guys will not follow me, her daughter later that day, I called the pastor and said, look, this is what I did. And he's like, oh, this is, this is not one of those things you survive. And I was like, I know, I know mistakes were made. And he said, yes. So we call in the lady and she's sitting there and I was like, ma'am, I am so terribly sorry, but I spilled your mom in, in the choir loft. And, and then I dirt deviled her up. And while I'm saying this, she is bawling and like sobbing. And I was like, oh, I'm never working in West Virginia again. And I was like, I am so sorry. I did not mean to disrespect my mo- your mother. And he's, she's like, I'm not crying. I am laughing. This is the funniest thing I have ever heard. My mom would love this. She's going to haunt every all-nighter this church has forevermore. You could not have done anything better for her legacy. Actually, that is relevant. My big mistake ended up being one of those things that made me a youth ministry legend in the state of West Virginia. <laughs> Mistakes were made. My pastor looked at me and said, only by the grace of God, you are the most blessed man I have ever met in my life. Mistakes were made. And then more mistakes. They say to err is human, but sometimes we take advantage of that truth, do we not? And mistakes beget mistakes, which beget mistakes. And we see that in even a more pronounced way in the life of Xerxes, right? We can look back into chapter 1 and we see the, the mistake of Xerxes as, as he makes the decision to say, hey, I, I'm mad at my wife because such and such has happened. We're going to make a federal law. We're going to make a law throughout all of, of the world to say that, that if a wife disrespects her husband, it will not be tolerated and Vashti's going to be sent off. But, but that's not where the mistakes ended. Xerxes, his whole life from that war council to the time where we see him in chapter 2 was what we might consider a comedy of errors. First, his most beautiful and noble queen was banished. A little interesting fact about Vashti, not only was Vashti undescribably beautiful, she is believed to have been the great-granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So she had pedigree. She added, to the, she added to the notoriety of Xerxes' rule, the, the uh, authenticity and officialness and the, the divine ordination of his rule. We know, I, I mentioned it last week, that, that he had this victory over the 300 Spartans at the hot gates. But his victory at Thermopylae came at great cost. These 300 men killed thousands. It was a victory that came at great cost. It was a victory that could have come with less or no cost had he taken the time to consider. But, but in his anger and frustration, he pushed into battle, brought about heavy casualties. From Thermopylae, we are told that we know that, that he went to, to cross the Hellespont. 
The Hellespont is a strait that crosses from one part of Greece onto an island. And he got to the Hellespont and he had his engineers build a bridge. And they built this bridge that was an, an architectural and engineering wonder of the world using, using boats and ropes and floats. And, and they tied them together making this amazing bridge. But while the engineers waited for Xerxes and his army, a great storm came up and destroyed the bridge. Well, when Xerxes arrived and saw the destruction and the loss, he was furious. So he had all of his brightest and best engineers that had built this bridge beheaded. Then in his fury, he sought to bring the water under control. So he had shackles thrown into the water. He ordered his, his soldiers to give 30, 300 lashes, like to actually whip the water. While the water was being branded with hot irons, while soldiers shouted insults at the water in order to bring it under control. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being one of the soldiers as the order is being given? You want me to do what to what? I want you to handcuff the lake. I want you to beat it nigh unto death. And I want you to insult it the whole time to bring it under control. Next time you have a cup of coffee that's just a little bit too hot. I suggest you try that. Instead of gently blowing on it, spit a few insults at it and smack it around a little bit and see how it works out for you. That's what Xerxes does. Xerxes then rushed into a naval battle at Salamis. And in his haste and arrogance, he created the very circumstances that cost him most of his fleet and sent him home in shame. History tells us that Xerxes remained rich and powerful for the rest of his life. But following his attempted conquest of Greece, Xerxes was never again 180 days rich and famous. He cost the Persians a great amount of wealth. There's a warning in that. Unchecked emotion and imprudence are common bedfellows. Where one is found, the other often follows. And they regularly cause us to pursue some really bad ideas that bring about equally bad results. I mean, James warns, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God requires. When we make these decisions based on our emotions and, and on arrogant feelings, on self-confidence, it often drives us into actions and outcomes that are not good. We've all experienced situations or seasons in which we can't seem to get out of our own way. We've all made decisions based on ideas that, that seemed right at the moment but were clearly bad in hindsight. We've all had mistakes stack up on one another. The struggle is real, but so is the grace of our compassionate God. Xerxes is making a mess. And as if all of his mistakes weren't enough, he makes one more to begin chapter two. Xerxes once again enacts a ridiculous plan. And the plan is to have a beauty pageant throughout the entire kingdom to determine the next queen. Even in a world 
where decisions, important military and civic decisions, were made while inebriated, this was not a good idea. This was not how things were done. Queens almost always came from nobility. They had easy access to the king, and therefore it was important that as default advisors, that they had some kind of education and experience that would allow them to give what they thought would be good advice in those private moments. Marriage was a means of, of creating and tightening political allegiances, of consolidating power, and increasing the strength of a potential successor's claim to the throne. It's possible that Mamukin from chapter 1, the one who, who came with the suggestion, hey, banish Vashti. This is bad for everybody. Let's banish Vashti. Let's find a new queen. It's quite possible that he, being one of the seven top advisors with the most access to the king, actually had intent in that. That perhaps the reason he pushed for Vashti to be pushed out was to open space for his own daughter to step in. To increase his own power and hold and influence in the kingdom. But this is not how you, you, you would decide, you would decide a, a, a queen. Through, through this very questionable, very questionable beauty contest. That this new queen is not going to be decided based upon political expedience or position or power. It's going to be decided based on two things. And I warned you before I say this, I called my mother and she said it's okay that I say this this morning. It's going to be decided by two things. Beauty and booty. Those are the two things. Now, that is the nicest way that I can say this because that's what happens. The beauty contest is not just you parade them across the stage and they show their skill and their talent and then everybody votes. No, the way this works is they have 12 months of preparations. Then they have one night in the bedroom of the king to, to make themselves memorable. You do the math on that. It is not a good metric. It's not a good means through what, which one would make a decision or, or decide on a queen. Look at verses 12 through 14. It says, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go there. And in the morning, she would return to another part of the harem to the care of Shashaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. There are two different leaders of harems in this text, Haggai and Shazgaz. Haggai is over the king's harem, where his wives resided. The, these, these are the A-list women that have political importance. The, the concubines are just there for sexual pleasure. That is it. And history tells us that the kings of Persia maintained at least 360 at all times. There's no need for King Xerxes to decide a wife in this way. But history tells us that following his massive failure in Greece, Xerxes spent the rest of his life indulging in pleasures of the flesh. That regularly new women 
were rounded up and brought to Xerxes. But only this time is one of them going to become the queen consort of all of Persia. Truth is that Xerxes isn't looking for a strong, intelligent, well-connected queen to speak her mind and assist him in ruling the kingdom. He's looking for a quiet and compliant piece of eye candy. Mistakes abound. But God can and often does use the mistakes and the wrongs of humanity to enact his plan. And Xerxes' failure paid the wave for Esther's rise. And this is something we've got to understand that we see in the book of Esther, that sometimes God uses unfavorable situations to bestow his favor upon his people. Sometimes God uses unfavorable situations to bestow favor upon his people. To our modern mind, this whole situation seems unspeakably evil. But it did put Esther in the perfect position to receive favor and to offer protection for God's people. Let's look in Esther chapter 2 verses 5 through 8. It says, Now, There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, She had a lovely figure and was very beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So we see Esther ending up in in the palace. This is inexplicable. There's no reason that Esther should have been where she was at this time. In that day, Esther was nothing. Esther was no one and had nothing to offer a king. She had no business being drawn into this process, into this political political intrigue and this, this, this strata of power in that day. Now, some important notes for us to think about, because it's going to be important as the story goes along. Esther was, in fact, of royal blood. It's, it's kind of inherent and in the background of the text, but if you pay attention, you realize that the name Kish is an important name in Israel's history. Saul, the first king of Israel, was actually the son of Kish. And, and what, what the author is doing here is he's setting up a coming battle, a battle that should have been fought generations ago and finished between Saul and Agag, king of the Amalekites. But Saul failed to do away with Agag, king of the Amalekites. And here the people of Israel are dealing with the failure of their own leaders generations later. But Esther was of a royal bloodline, albeit from a long time deceased and deposed king of an exiled people. So even though she comes from royal, from royal blood, she, she's, she's nothing. 
I mean, royalty with no kingdom is not royalty. Esther wasn't always from this exiled and deposed line. She was an orphan. She had neither mother nor father, which was actually considered to be a, a mark against you in those days. It was a sign that God didn't favor you. Esther was a Jewess. We actually see that told in verses 10 and 11, but it's noted, we know that, that Mordecai himself was a Jew. Esther was a Jewess. This is a fact that her cousin Mordecai says, hey, don't tell anybody this. Don't let anybody know your nationality. Don't let anybody know where you come from. And, and we see why very quickly, don't we? Like it, we're the very next chapter, we see Haman and, and the anti-Semitism that was already festering in the Persian kingdom. And the Jews were known for being rebellious people. And so Mordecai's like, look, for your own protection, don't tell him who you are. Don't tell him where you come from. But Esther wasn't without virtues. Verse 7 tells us that Esther was drop-dead gorgeous to the point that where the author doubles down. He tells us that Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. According to Hebrew tradition, actually, rabbinic teaching, Esther is believed to be one of the four most beautiful women who ever lived, along with Sarah, Rahab, and Abigail. Then you have Esther, one of the four most beautiful women to ever live. One other thing to note, though, is this, that Esther had no choice in the matter. The text tells us that Esther was taken. It wasn't that they, they, didn't, they didn't go out into town and put up a bunch, of, a bunch of flyers saying, hey, if you're interested in coming and being a part of this, have you ever dreamed of being a queen? Now's your chance. Come to the palace. We'll give you a year to get ready, and you could be the queen. You're either going to be the queen or living above the garage, but, like, you got a chance. That, that's not how this went. This was a common practice of Persians to go and collect. And unless we think, oh, wow, it's the patriarchy trying to hold down women. It wasn't just women they did this to. They would go around and they would collect hundreds of young, beautiful women and hundreds of young boys that they thought had potential. And the women would be misused in this way, usually sexually. The young men would be castrated and used as eunuchs. It was a terrible situation. And here we have Esther taken as a possession for the king's pleasure. It's interesting reading some of the, the scholars and experts of this because they want to impugn Esther's character. They, they, they want to say, well, Esther should have fought this. Esther should have risen up and spoken against what Xerxes was doing. Esther should have said that this is wrong what you're doing, Xerxes. I, I can't be a part of this. Make no mistake, Esther had no choice in the matter. I mean, think about it. Vashti was queen. And Vashti said, hey, I'm not going to come walk around in front of you. As a queen, the daughter or the granddaughter of, of a great king of Babylon. And all of that was not enough to protect her. What's going to happen to Esther? She has no choice in the matter. Esther was a victim of the sin of Xerxes, not a guilty participant. You know, sometimes the mistakes are ours. 
Sometimes, and often, the sins are ours. They are mistakes that we have made that that put us in a bad position that God needs to turn our mourning into gladness because of our own mistakes. But if we're honest, there are many times in our lives where the sin is propagated upon us, where we don't have control over the situations. The sin belongs to others, is forced upon us, But this is the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the grace of God. God is in the business of taking the evil actions of humanity and turning them for the good. We see that prominently in the story of Joseph, don't we? Where Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt and goes through basically a lifetime of terrible things that he has to deal with. And ultimately he's able to look at his brothers in the eye and says, what you meant for evil, God used for good. Even in the midst of terrible situation, there is still hope. God is still moving. Remember our questions. Where do we see God moving? What does God require? And will I faithfully serve him in the struggle? Well, I would would submit to you that even in the midst of this terrible situation that Esther is facing, that God is moving. That that the hand of divine providence is moving and, and, and orchestrating events and utilizing the terrible sins of Xerxes to make way for his perfect will. Esther ends up in the palace. The text tells us that Esther finds favor everywhere with everyone. Let's look at verses 8 through 9 and then 15 through 18. It says, when the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to Haggai, to the king's palace. And she pleased Haggai and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants, selected from the king's palace, and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Then we go to verse 15. When the turn came for Esther... The young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, and for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the province and distributed gifts with royal liberality. We see Esther winning favor everywhere she goes. That's what the text uses. Three times we see the phrase, and Esther won the favor. Esther won the favor. Verses 8 through 9, we see her immediately winning the favor of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. This is the man who is tasked with getting all the girls ready for their turn with the king. This is the man that has oversight of all of the the king's wives. And here he stacks the deck in Esther's favor. He gives her special food, a prime place in the palace, and assigns to her seven attendants. 
Some scholars suggest that this special treatment is not just Haggai saying, man, I like Esther. She is a good lady. I want her to win. It's probable that that is part of it. But the reality is Haggai has been dealing with the king's women for years and years and years. And so it's possible that Esther walks to the door and Haggai goes, that's the winner. This contest is over before it starts. Let's just move this thing along. Whatever the case may be, soon as Esther gets into the the palace, she starts winning friends. And she wins the favor of Haggai. Verses 15 through 17, we see that Esther wins the favor of all those who see her in the palace. Now, this could mean two different things. That Esther, part of her going to the king, that part of these young women going to the king was them being paraded through the palace on their way to the king's night chamber. But more likely, what it means is that Esther, through a year of being in the palace, everybody liked her. That there was something about how Esther treated others, something about how she carried herself, something how she functioned that, that drew people to her. And it tells us that everybody in the palace favored her. Verse 17 through 18 tells us not only does she win the favor of Haggai, not only does she win the favor of everyone in the palace, she wins the king's favor. But the text goes further. It tells us that he loved her. The king loved Esther, which is interesting because this contest is not about love. This whole contest is about lust. But somehow, God in his grace, this woman Esther comes in and the king loves her. Now we can say, well, love can mean a lot of different things. It can. But the Hebrew wording that is used here indicates that the king had an emotional response to Esther. That his heart was moved that he had affection for her. That, that all these other girls were, were, yes, for his pleasure. And they were just playthings that were parading through. But somehow, Esther comes into the room and God in his grace causes the king to fall in love with her. Throughout the whole story, Esther demonstrates incredible grace under fire. And as a result, wins the favor of everyone who sees her and wins the heart of the king. Now, we could look at this and say, this is just a horrible situation. It's hard for us to register. I want to note something. Do you note that the the author of Esther doesn't attribute morality to anything that's happening? He, He doesn't tell us that Esther sins in what she's doing. He doesn't even tell us that the king sins. He assumes that his readers are going to understand the foolishness of the king in the court. The whole story through the first two chapters is to express the excesses and the ridiculousness of the Persian court. You see that. And in the process, by contrast, it demonstrates the control and the calm of Esther in the midst of chaos. There is this clear contrast where, where Esther is in, put in the midst of this terrible, terrible situation. But somehow this terrible situation becomes the means through which God brings about his favor for his people. God uses these unspeakable evils and mistakes of Xerxes to open up the avenues that are going to bring about the redemption and salvation of his people. You know, we can't always choose or control our situations. But we can and must determine how we're going to respond to and live through the struggles of life. 
whether they're struggles of our own making. It's not wise for us when we've made a mistake to respond in a reactionary way and, and to jump into conclusions and, and to try to, to, to maneuver, to hide things. That just results in more mistakes. We need to turn to the grace of God and trust God to help us alleviate the struggles we've created. In the same way, sometimes those situations are beyond our control. And I think this is often the case in our life. So much of our lives are how are we going to react to the struggles over which we have no control. The situations in which we just have to live. Will we let those struggles and situations determine the joy in our lives? determine the outworking of our lives, the direction of our lives? Or we continue to hold on to hope, believing that even in the midst of darkness and difficult situations, that God is still moving, that God can bring redemption, that God is in the business of bringing victory where there's clearly defeat. Trusting God will redeem the messes of, of our lives is an important part of faith throughout the Bible. And we see God doing it here in Esther, that God uses incredibly unfavorable situations, terrible, unspeakably awful situations to open avenues, to bestow his favor upon Esther and to bring about the salvation of his people. And I think we need a note as we draw towards the conclusion of this. The end does not justify the means. The end does not justify the means. Just because God takes the errors of our lives and those become a ground on which God can show his grace, Paul himself tells us that in Romans 5 and 6. Paul says, look, I understand that the more I mess up, the more God's grace is made known. That God's grace is made perfect in my weakness. But does that mean that we should just go on sinning, that God's grace might abound all the more? And Paul says, may heaven forbid it. This is utter foolishness. We've been buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Yes, God does redeem us in our mistakes, in our sins. God did die for us in our sins and our failures. But that doesn't mean we should just excuse them and keep living in them and trusting that God's going to fix it. We should try to follow God and do what God wants us to do. While God may use the sins of humanity, that does not excuse them. Now, something else I want us to be clear about, that God does use the mistakes of Xerxes to bring about his salvation, but God is not complicit in the sin. So often we look at our situations and we see the difficulty, we see the reality of sin, and we understand that, that God is sovereign, right? That God has the right to rule and reign, that God is in control. And we assume then that that means that, that, God, that God is responsible when we sin. That God is complicit, which is funny because we want to blame God for being sovereign and say it's his fault when bad things happen. But then we want to complain when, when we think, when we're told that we don't have free will. I want to do what I want when I want to do it. So, so let me get this straight. When everything goes good and everything is right and everything goes according to plan, that's you. But when everything is screwed up and everything is messed up and my life goes to shambles, that's the sovereignty of God and God has wronged me. Am I wrong? I mean, I hear this all the time. When things go good, it's because of my abilities and my planning and my procedure. When things go bad, it's because God and his sovereignty has failed me. 
Esther could have easily said that. Esther could have easily been defeated. God has forgotten me. Where is God? God has left me alone. But Esther continues to act with grace. How do I know she's acted with grace? So you might say you're reading into the text. No, I'm not. I know that she acted with grace because she wins. Inexplicably, this woman from nowhere with nothing to offer a king, with no business being in the court, no business being in the king's house, ascends and becomes not just the queen of all Persia, but a beloved queen. The tables turn while the crown is taken off of Vashti because she refused it. It is put on the head of Esther. And what was a terrible situation becomes the pathway that God uses to provide salvation. Our sins and the struggles we face do, as much as we may not like it, create space at times in which God's grace can most powerfully move and work does not mean that we are excused from our sins and our actions. It does not mean that we should go on sinning without thought of consequence. Absolutely not. We should seek to live the righteous life that God asks of us, but we should understand that there is always hope of redemption, that God can always take the mess of our lives, messes that we have made or messes that have been made for us, and he can use those as the means to bring about his great salvation. I mean, the greatest salvation in history came through an incredible sin as men crucified the living Son of God. And the greatest good ever came through that unspeakable evil. So what can God do in our lives? We see the theme of Esther clearly at work in the comparison of these first two chapters. We see the fall of a powerful and wealthy king through his own sinfulness and imprudence. At the same time, we see how God uses the king's wrongs to prepare to do the right thing for his people. Even in dark and difficult days, even in the midst of, of numerous and unspeakable struggles and evils, whether done by us or to us, God is still at work. God is still maneuvering in and through even our failures to bring about Salvation, redemption, and deliverance. This is the amazing grace of God. That though our failures be without number, God's grace is big enough to still bring about salvation. Will we trust him? Will we faithfully follow him even in the midst of these unspeakable days and situations? Will we trust him to work through us even when we can't see exactly where it's going. Father God, may you work and move in our lives according to your plan and purpose, even when we don't see it. May you redeem the wrongs of our lives, whether they be done to us or by us. And God, may you continue to bring about your salvation as only you can. God, may we repent of the mistakes that we have made. May we lean into your amazing grace. May you work through it to make yourself known, and to bring salvation to those who need it. God, we offer you ourselves as imperfect as we are, trusting you completely. In Jesus' name, amen.